Welcome to Blue Topsy Radio. My name is Daniel Blackman. I'm Eric Cohen. And today we want to close out the year on a very positive note with a good friend of mine that I respect, not just from her political service, but as a person, as, as a, a person that is not only representing our communities and our values, but someone that is on the front line of a lot of conversations, which we're going to get into today, Eric. Yes. Come on ahead, continue. I'm just right. I'm just soaking in. You just felt it seemed like you're on a roll. Well, you guys can't see what I can see. Eric has notes, right? So the way this works is most of the time, my personal perspective is always more of an approach to people that I know that I'm familiar with. Eric is the research, like the, the living, walking, breathing Google, and he has some notes for our friend today who we're going to interview, which is my friend Brenda Lopez. Pleasure to be with you guys, and uh, pleasure to say hello to all the listeners. And so today, you know. Obviously, we were all, uh, what, 30, 45 days removed from the election mm-hmm. era. Uh, a lot of feedback that that I think can go well beyond this podcast today. But more than anything else, I wanted to talk about a post-election analysis and yes. what it looks like to go into 2019. So, Brenda, as you join us today, why don't you let everybody know, I believe it's House District uh, 99. And uh, is that correct? That's correct. So that's all within Winnett County. I tell folks I am the Northeast Corner Spaghetti Junction, 85 and 285, um, all unincorporated with addresses, including Lilburn, Norcross, and Tucker. That's good. And so as, as you all may or may not know, uh, I am the chair of the 7th Congressional District, which includes Winnett and Forsyth County. And shout out to Carolyn Bordeaux. That's right. Carolyn did a phenomenal job running against uh, an incumbent in this area, who I won't mention, but has not really made us that proud, but Carolyn knocked on the door of progress. Uh, we were happy to see what Lucy McBath did in the 6th Congressional District, and today we want to kind of dive in a little, bit, a little bit more. So before we get started, Eric, why don't you talk about some of the information that you have, and let's just kind of segue into this conversation with Brenda. Absolutely. Well, I want to go back to Bordeaux for a second. Let's do it. Did you know that she had the, her opponent, the smallest margin of victory of anybody who's an incumbent going back to Washington? That's good to know, and mm-hmm. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. And we also flipped the precinct in Forsyth County. We did, and for Forsyth County, that is a big deal. We had about 52, 53% of the vote in that precinct. Out of what, we have 12? Yeah, 12. And I think the, the best thing for me and the biggest uh, type of, of, of appreciation I have for what Carolyn and so many others were able to do were the new progressive coalitions like Connect the Dots and uh, different organizations throughout right. the, the county that have really... Uh, done work to help our party infrastructure. Melissa Clink, mm-hmm. Patricia Jackson, uh, you know, so many folks that are doing good things. Anita Tucker, who's been, you know, leading in conversations around preventing gun violence in our county and in our state and around our country. So, you know, kudos to everyone on the Forsyth side that has done the job that it takes. And I won't spend too much time on it, but, you know, it's good to see the leadership and, you know, our, our recently state Senator Michael Williams uh, has this indictment, which is a blemish on our county and we're not gonna we're not gonna spend too much time without having the facts but it, <laughs> i am happy to see that we are making just as many positive headlines with our progress and with our great democratic infrastructure as the county has had not so positive that's right the most exciting thing to me is that we're getting this message out around the state even if you're in a county that is majority republican getting people out to vote the cumulative effect at the top of the race, the top of the ticket, you can get people over the top. So even though we're not like Gwinnett County blue yet, you know, there can be a very good positive effect by having people going out and vote. But, but I think something that you mentioned that I also want to highlight in terms of the post-election is um, 
the fact that we had this historic numbers, really, I give a lot of the credit to Stacey Abrams for being the type of person that both can be inspiring in terms of charisma and personality, just listening to her talk in any of her town halls that she held won people over. And um, also simply because if that's not good enough for you, she's a, uh, she's the smartest person that there was under that cap. Uh, Super under that qualified, yep. Overly qualified right. for her position. And um, and quite frankly, that's, you know, between the fact that we had a, lo a lot of local candidates and a lot of different levels of government of folks coming out and people coming out to vote, and then you had such a great top ticket um, individuals that really pushed this historic vote. And part of her, uh, her position was always from the beginning is that she was going to go after all Democratic votes. Mm -hmm. You know, doesn't matter if there was only one or two in one precinct, that's one or two more votes. Right. What should we know for all of our listeners, uh, Brenda, uh, about Gwinnett County that we don't know? Because too often when people think of Metro Atlanta, they really think a lot of Fulton and DeKalb. They think of Clayton. And we know, Eric and I, and, and many others who, who reside there, uh, it's really hard for people to be able to understand uh, the makeup of Forsyth County. Uh, it has traditionally been very conservative and it has a, a, a deep history, but uh, we are helping to reshape our identity. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, Gwinnett County is a majority-minority district, but how is the, represent how the representation as far as the elected officials locally in Gwinnett? And just tell us some things about Gwinnett that we might appreciate that we might not know. Well, one of the things that um, we really need to recognize, even though Gwinnett County did really well, especially for our local candidates, and you know, at second in the second election cycle, we've actually turned blue. So now it's not just a fluke. You know, mm -hmm. we, we know this is this is where we are now as a county. Um, it's important to note that we have a lot of work yet to do here, precisely as as it relates to being a majority minority county, because the vast majority of minority growth of people of color have been from the Latino and Asian communities. And so not only just growing in population, but basically the revamping of all our shopping centers, all our small businesses, primarily lo uh, locally owned small business owners um, from these communities that really have sh um, um, reshaped who Winnet County is. And now it's no longer just in words. You know, we had plenty of times I would hear from our, our chairman, our county commission chairman, about how one of the strengths of um, Winnet County was its diversity. However, that was zero reflected in the elected officials of our county. And this election cycle, that has drastically changed. Uh, we have um, two new um, people of color in our county commissions out of five individuals. And, who, who are they? Um, that's Ben Koo, which is actually my um, county commissioner now. who will soon to be, as of today, he's going to be sworn in. So I'm really excited. He actually lives in my district. And in 16, when I first ran, I actually knocked on his door. Uh, <laughs> and he told me for, at that time, I don't remember specifically whether it was the last 10 or 12 years that he had lived in, in his home there, no candidate had ever reached out to him not in his door, not a call, not a mailer. And so he got really excited that someone actually bothered to show up at his door. And so I told him, hey, you should get engaged. There's a lot of things that this, this side of, of Winnet County, the southern portion of Wood County really needs. And, um, and this is exactly the problem that we haven't been reaching out to folks. And so at some point I invited him to do uh, Winnet 101, which is a program that the county does to kind of introduce um, residents of Winnet to the county and county services. And um, he took the he took he did do the program and he really kind of fell in love with with the process of, of, of the county and being engaged in the county. And then one day uh, we were sitting down at, a, at an event and he's like, what do you think about me running? I'm like, 
that is excellent. So I'm really excited that he ran in that. So in other words, your candidacy became contagious. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm really excited. And then we also have Marlene Fosco that um, that also won county commission. We have a, a brand new and first um, ever person of color, um, uh, African-American young man, actually, Everton Blair for school board. Okay. So very excited. A very smart young man um, that's, again, very reflective about what they believe it's in, in the low 30s, about 33% of the student population in Gwinnett County is African-American. And I know so, our friend Kirkland is over there, too, uh, in Gwinnett. And what, what, what role position does Kirkland hold? So he, he was, um, and he won last election cycle, City, city Young Council, so okay. City Council of Duluth. And so we, we have um, them at the local level. But we also, obviously, um, our delegation got flipped from having only five um Democratic delegates um, to now we are 18. Oh, wow. Um, so we flipped our delegation. Mm-hmm. I wish we had, we had a bell. We had a bell to ring when people <laughs> that get news, right? <laughs> with that, and, and, and that happened with a very diverse set of candidates, right? We have um, Zara, which is of Iranian background. Uh, we have an, um, Angelica, which is, which is I, I believe, of German background. We have Sam Park that had won before, Korean background. Myself, where that I won the last election cycle. Um, with being the first Latina in the General Assembly in 2016, and for me that was problematic. Um, that I've, I didn't find that a cause for celebration. I found that a cause for, for concern. That in 2016, six years after officially being declared a majority minority county, we're still talking right. about first in 2016 and 2018. So it's about time that, um, that what we were saying, right? The fact that we were majority minority county um, is starting now um, eight years later, right. to really reflect that diversity in our elected officials. But that being said, the part that I think that, um, going back to your question about what's not known about Winnet County, what's, is that there's a lot of more work that we have to do to build the infrastructure and make sure that the significant number of potential first-time voters that tend to come from the Latino and the Asian um, community here in Winnet County has yet to be tapped. Um, it's it's untapped voters that we have, and if we think we did well in eighteen, how much more can we do in twenty and twenty two if we start tapping and doing the proper infrastructure into those voters? Yeah, and I know Bianca Keaton, um, if I'm not mistaken, was just elected the chair in Gwinnett, and you know, regardless of of what counties uh, have been able to accomplish or not, it's it's always great to see the leadership be attracted, and we want to thank you for inspiring other people to be out there and. You know, one thing that you mentioned uh, was the diversity of the county. Uh, one issue that has plagued our 2018 uh, election was the voter suppression conversation that we so frequently had. Uh, we all know the narrative and the role that Brian Kemp played as Secretary of State and then as the gubernatorial candidate who has ultimately gone on to our governor-elect in this state. And uh, I would like to touch on some of the diversity you talked about earlier from the Latino and the Asian populations, because very often when we think of voter suppression, especially within uh, southern states, we think primarily of the the impact on black folks. But voter suppression, in my opinion, uh, affects poor people, affects black people, Latino people, Asian people. I mean, you name it, you know, voter suppression is just that. And could you speak a little bit more to not just the diversity of the county, but how are some of those groups uniquely impacted? Because I've heard stories on the Gwinnett side from students that uh, that, that, that tried to vote absentee and, and that didn't happen. I've, I've heard stories about folks' uh, names a certain way on a license that mm-hmm. may have been incorrect. 
What were some of the things you noticed and, and how can we work to fix that, especially as it relates to educating our voter base? Well, definitely there's some, you know, I, for me it's very interesting. I did my K through 12 education here. So learning about um, civil rights and learning about the um, great individuals um, that really pushed forward to, to provide me the access and the rights that I currently hold kind of became part, it, it, it is part of me. And so, you know, as I got older, and it wasn't until I got older and sort of did my own sort of reading and saw that during the same era we had in the Southwest um, with particularly primarily um, uh, Mexican-American background individuals basically fighting the same civil rights issues, right? To voting, to, to um, equal facilities, to desegregation. All the issues that we faced here were being done there, and I don't think that we, we um, share the fact that we have the same history. Well, why, why, why don't we share that narrative? I mean, why is it that when people think of the civil rights movement in the United States, primarily the Dr. King era, right? You, you hear about the Jim Crow South, but you're right. We don't hear a lot about the Mexican-American plight. We don't hear a lot about the Asian-American plight, even though we know that they were uh, the Japanese at one point in our country were um, interned. And, and I think that there are parts of our history that are overshadowed by the uh, you well, know, ills that have happened in the South. But, you know, you, you bought that up, and I just want to kind of... Absolutely. Interject. I mean, the, the fact that I can be a naturalized citizen today is because of the Chinese Exclusion Act yeah. and the Chinese... Uh, the, well, eventually, American Chinese American that um, fought the case in, um, under Supreme Court um, case of Wong, and so uh, why I think part of it is sort of when we talk about systemic issues, right, and yeah. also regionalism, not in a negative kind of way, but in in how it makes sense that regionally you kind of discuss history that's closest to you, and so mm -hmm. obviously here in the South, um, Southeast, that history um, that's predominated by the African American narrative is exactly what was lived here. So I think that that's the history that we're taught. Obviously, if you go to the Southwest and you look through their social, social studies books and their history books, it's more focused on, obviously, the different um, labor union also that that's was right. very, very yeah. strong in the civil rights movement. But um, it's great to point that out because now that we have that variety of more diversification here in, in, in Georgia particularly, but in that county specifically, it's important that we begin to understand that we all have the same shared history. And what I always um, tell folks, you know, when we talk about uh, different groups and having different voter suppression issues, is that those are all symptoms of the same illness, and the illness being biased and, and mm -hmm. racial animus. And that doesn't matter, you know, what sort of person of color you are. Um, so when we talk about, well, you know, what are specific issues, and there are some that are more relevant or, or more specific to the Latino and Asian immigrant communities that are now naturalized and or first, um, first generation, uh, second generation born here in the United States and that are now voting. Um, you know, for example, we were disproportionately had the highest number of rejected absentee ballots um, based on issues of exact match. Wow. And um, issues of, of signature match, I'll tell you, my signature from one to the next is right. Oh. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so tell me about it. And I'll tell you another <laughs> personal example. I'll tell you about exact match, which what happens with obviously tra um, less traditional or less um, anglicized ways of name structure. That obviously within the Asian community, you have many members that, that um, obviously their, their, their native <coughs> alphabet is not a, a um, romance language based. And also, even the um, English versions of names get get translated differently. And so it's very hard also, clerical errors of simply typing sure. in your name wrong. But even for me personally, 
I have about probably five variations of my name with five different government agencies still, right? And it's taken me at least 10 to 15 years to try to fix most of my documents to match. That's amazing. And, and so that's what we had, right? We have issues of people, you know, my full legal birth name was Brenda Lopez Romero, but I get, you know, I have Brenda Ro Romero, I have Brenda Lopez, I have Brenda Lopez Romero, I have Brenda Lopez hyphen Romero, I have mm -hmm. Brenda R. Lopez, I have all sorts of variations of my name. And so, and this is from a person that has had both the privilege of education, the privilege of work flexibility, the privilege of knowing how and when and basically being able to make a fuss at government mm -hmm. agencies until until they change things. When you have people that are of low income um, backgrounds or people with lower formal education, it's things that aren't readily available to them to do to even fix mm -hmm. their documents. You're absolutely um, right. So, so that's something that's why I think that we were as a county far disproportionate um, in terms of absentee um, ballots being rejected. Uh, on top of the fact that, you know, we, um, it, 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 what, this election cycle was the first election cycle that we had all material translated into English and Spanish. Um, and that was by federal statute that required it. Prior to that, for the last four years before this election cycle, many um, nonprofit organizations were fighting the county to try to voluntarily do so because we were we were telling them that once the census numbers came out, that was going to be the case and to just go ahead and be prepared. And basically the county commission stance and the through vis-a-vis -vis the election board was basically sue us or we'll wait for the federal <laughs> government to let to make us, right? When when the vast majority of their pop voting population is um, uh, of limited English proficiency. Now, Winnet has had to do it now because out of federal mandate, but this county being so diverse, um, at a minimum, we should have Korean and Vietnamese as, right. as a standard to additional languages. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, even going back to the race for the uh, 7th Congressional District, you know, we had a gentleman that was from uh, Gwinnett, uh, David Kim, who ran and. Uh, I know that the, there is a Korean population that has been neglected in so many aspects. You know, I can speak to the fact that, you know, 50, I mean, I'm sorry, 32 percent of uh, Georgia's population are, are black folks, you know. And uh, when we saw not the 32 percent of the, of the black, but 53 percent of the voter uh, suppression that we saw, especially in these areas where black, Latino, and Asian. And I think it's critical that we understand that the, the picture and the perspective you gave is so critical for us because for the messaging, not just within the Democratic Party, but if we're going to motivate these bases and if we're going to speak and appeal to their needs, we need to understand the diversity of our communities. Even when you look at uh, Forsyth County, one group we didn't mention was East Indian. You know, Forsyth County has one of the fastest growing East Indian populations in the United, not in the United States, but in the state of Georgia. Mm -hmm. 159 counties in Georgia, and we have the fastest growing population of that segment, and we need to do a better job of voter engagement. In equal application of rules and laws. So, for example, in Forsyth, when we had the runoff, which was, you know, a couple of weeks back, my wife had renewed her license about three weeks prior. So we're like, uh-oh, got to get over to the Secretary of State site, get her name in there properly so that there wasn't an issue when we went there. So I went in and I spoke to the head of elections in Forsyth County, and she goes, oh, no, don't worry about it. She goes, in Forsyth, this is how it works. You have her first name, you have her last name. She goes, they're going to look at her face and look at her picture. And she's like, don't worry about that middle name, whether it's there or not. It, it will be fine. And guess what? She went up there. It hadn't been changed, even though her license had an additional name in it. No big deal. That, 
and that is the problem when right. you have leave it to a certain extent at the discretion, right? right? Because that's even what happened in Winnet County is that for whatever issue, whether it was like did the address match, they did not, the poll workers are left with um, lack of guidance mm-hmm. and told that you have this discretion to consider it where you have such a difference between what one poll um, worker will accept or not right. or have a concern with when a, another one will totally not have any problems mm-hmm. and, and you know and kind of make a, a more common sense deduction right hey this is your name looks complete right. your first and last name this is That's you, you. On this picture right. and um and you move on right um but that that you know that is an issue that is an issue to have more um more guidance in, in mm-hmm. terms of those issues, especially now as these counties, and particularly um, at precinct levels, quite frankly, that have different unique needs based on their voter base. I know that in the lawsuits that have been filed, it was like like signature match. Those people are not experts at signature analysis. Oh, it's like, just like you were saying, my signature is just a big old mess. Say you were 30 years ago, you, you did it. Well, as you age, you know, signature will change. It's just common sense stuff. I want to circle back around to something, though, that, that you said, because talking about population changes and basically the lag between representation, what we have found talking to friends, like particular in the, the Indian American community, they're like they've come to this country and they don't have an identity. They don't identify with a particular political party. And it's on us to basically kind of teach them, and help guide them. Yes. And I think it, um, particularly speaking of the general Democratic Party, right, whether it be national, state or, or county level. Um, I think that it is um, it, it is short-sighted of us to expect, you know, one of the things that I frequently say is that what, I've see, what I used to see frequently was like, hey, we're here. People are welcome to come. That's not how that works. You don't get people engaged by just sitting around mm-hmm. in your comfort zone right. when that right. is not the comfort zone of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's um, uh, short-sighted also that we don't basically take the first bite at the apple. And this is true for a lot of first-time voters, particularly those of immigrant backgrounds, they have no a political affiliation because they don't have a history to, to that they grew up with, like mm-hmm. myself, right? Um, it, it, and so they're basically up in the air. Mm-hmm. It's a toss-up. And basically whoever reaches them first is who's going to be able to sway them to their side. That's an interesting perspective because... I'm one generation removed from immigrants. You know, my, my mother and father immigrated here from Barbados. My, uh, you know, my uh, grandfather served with the United Nations. And so you're absolutely right because I think that it's almost, you know, a lot of times people get upset, which I, I don't agree with it at all. And I'm a Democrat. I'm a proud Democrat. But I, I hate when I hear people uh, criticize other cultures or groups for not voting and us assuming that they're voting against their interests. But I think you're absolutely right. You know, who is able to uh, articulate to them in the best way and to reach them uh, and, and to really show why their platform, their party, their purpose is more attractive is something we have to do a better job of. Because the first thing that I had to recognize is I was the first black person to run in Forsyth County, Georgia. I didn't know that. You know, I, I ran, you know, one thing led to another. But, you know, I, I don't think we do a good enough job of engaging communities. You know, and I have to tip my hat to our sheriff in Forsyth County, Ron Freeman, because one of the ways that he wanted to engage the community was by hiring some mm-hmm. folks from the diversity of our community. And that, you know, with hopes that his policing and his leadership would extend beyond those borders. So that being said, and, and those phenomenal, you know, different examples you've given and the fact that we, you know, we, we like you here on the show, we think you're a great person, but let's really get into it, right? The, 
the 2019 legislative session. Uh, they going into this year, the regular issues like transportation and uh, you know different ideas about how to run the state, the economy, the deepening of the Savannah port, and then that all uh, uh, disenfranchising issue of religious freedoms. Right. So here's where I want to kind of start off. When you think of how this year looked from the primary, uh, it seemed to many people that Casey Cagle might be the front, run front runner on the Republican side. Phenomenal coalition built to support and back Cagle. Uh, a lot of folks saw uh, Kemp as an outsider. We saw the rhetoric that he put out there uh, early in the primary with some of his ideas. And, you know, he was the kind of guy that, quite frankly, scared some of us because we knew those views were uh, counterproductive to what we would like to see within our state. But he ended up going through the primary. He ended up winning. And now we're entering into this period where Ralston, if I'm not mistaken, has made some comments mm -hmm. saying that, you know, he didn't think that this religious freedoms directive would be taken. What is your perspective? You're, you're someone that has been there. You're someone that is, I'm sure you're preparing yourself for what that might look like. <laughs> What's your perspective going into this next legislative session? Well, here's the thing. One of the things that I don't like is um, giving these forecasts because um, it really is unknown, right? And mm -hmm. so I think that um, Kemp has a decision to make in terms of how he's going to govern and what legislation he's going to push and or sign off or, or, or veto. And I think the decision that he has to make or, or, or the calculus that he's going to have to make is who is going to reelect him. Is the Georgia Chamber going to reelect him? Mm-hmm. Or is um, a more extreme primary voter base going to reelect him that got him through the primary against such a well-funded guy, basically, you know, next in line, mm -hmm. um, Casey Cable, right? And, and, you know, was that messaging that he talked about during his campaign, is that how he's going to govern? And so for me, what I'm preparing is for either or, because quite frankly, I think that it is a pretty close call in, in terms of that calculus about what's going to happen. Now, come his second um, term, if that were the case, we're going to work against that, but if that <laughs> were the case, then I think that you have a different calculus because there you're just talking, it's about your legacy, right? But right now, his concern is going to be his, who's going to, who is going to reelect him. And so that's on, the, that's on the governor's office side in terms of what he may or may not push. Now, if he decides that his um, extreme voter base is, going, is who's going to reelect him, I think there's going to be a lot of resistance or a lot of rubbing the wrong way with the established Republican mm -hmm. leadership that nonetheless, despite the fact that we flipped 14 seats in the House and three on the Senate side, on the Democratic side, um, nonetheless, we're still in the minority by a lot. So there's only but so much um, voting power we have. Um, but I think with some of the fracture that the Republican Party is going to have between those that might want to go along with Kemp if he is his campaign, um, govern, gov he's, if he governs based on his campaign, um, and those that, again, that are going to um, sway more towards moderation and towards trying to keep the economic development um, benefits that we've had so far and keep that sort of, you know, number one place to do business, which I think was said, I, who knows? Countless times. Yes, and it wasn't true, times. by the way. Well, not, not fully true. And then exactly, what does it mean? But, but nonetheless, I mean, generally, yes, we have been doing well economically in terms of aggregate macroeconomics, right? right? And that's one of the things to always distinguish what's happening at the macro level versus mm -hmm. the micro level. And so, um, so I think that there is a lot of issues that the Republican Party, especially the more central and um, 
I, I want to say, you know, center left, but rather just more center in the Republican ideology that um, that is trying to basically deal with the issues that they've had concerns. And I think that, uh, and I'll tell you, I've actually had three different um, members, one of the Senate and two from the House, talk to me. And um, they basically, I don't know if they talked amongst each other, but they literally told me the same thing, um, which was basically that this election cycle, they got two things really clear. Healthcare somehow has to be affordable and accessible. Something has to be done with healthcare. Let's hope they stick with that. <laughs> <laughs> like, particularly yeah. for us with our uh, issues of rural hospitals closing right. and the lack yeah. of healthcare availability in, in rural areas. I mean, you look at what Sarah Miko said with 79 uh, counties in the state of Georgia don't have an OBGYN. I mean, that is something that is not only inhumane, but it is something that folks should have access to. I know when I ran for the Public Service Commission, having access to wireless broadband, being able to you know, access first responder services. So I would hope that if that is what they shared with you, uh, they can commit to working within their party to make that happen. And just as a, a, as a little tangent on, on the issue of healthcare, before um, our current administration changed, um, I also don't refer to names, just the current ad, um, administration. <laughs> um, before that election and before, um, before he won, the Georgia Chamber, in fact, had commissioned a year before a study on how to do Medicaid expansion, basically by some other name. Mm-hmm. You know, um, they ended up saying they were going to call it like the Georgia Way, the Skinny Way. I'm, I'm sure they paid a consultants a lot of money, and this is the best thing they could do: Georgia Way or Skinny Way. But either way, anyways, the point is that they were trying to figure out how to do Medicaid expansion with as many of the waivers as they could possibly get. Yeah. Um, uh, and quite frankly, they would be getting literally prepared for a Clinton win, because then that would have solidified the ACA, the Affordable Care Act, and uh, then there would have been, they thought, enough political cover and clout with the ACA being protected by a, a, a Clinton um, presidency that their members could potentially vote on this Georgia way. So, but that's not what happened. Yeah. And. Uh, the Trump administration um, got got in, um, into the White House, and so basically they backed away from that. Not not the Georgia Chamber because they still have these issues, right? From from mm-hmm. from their from their members, but definitely on the Republican leadership side, they backed away from it because they thought there was a potential with lawsuits and then just simply the administration that it might just not go forward. Um, so now that we've seen the constant and constant attacks, we have to wait on what the decision is on this latest um, ruling of one federal district court that said it was unconstitutional, and we'll see how, how that progresses to the Supreme Court. Um, but so just, so just so we understand that Republican, most of the Republican legislators, particularly the leadership, um, they know what Georgia needs. Mm-hmm. They just, one, don't have the personal courage to do that unless they feel protected um, in their seats. And we were getting there, but we've had setbacks. But now that they've seen the wave of the, of the flips of the elections, not just in our state, but nationally, you know, they kind of see the writing on the wall that one way or another, they have to figure something out. And so, yeah, let's, let's, let's hope that that continued pressure might sway them to actually start voting in some capacity um, to do something different. The other thing that was um, mentioned to me, besides the healthcare issue um, and, and the affordability issue, is um, 
gun safety. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. That something has to be done about it, particularly in the context with students. Um, uh, both two of them mentioned that, that fact that they, you know, focusing on, on school safety issues as it relates to, to um, gun safety. And one of the things that I think for messaging for us that we need to discuss is that even though to a certain extent we vilify the NRA, and I think the, the because we don't distinguish the PAC NRA versus the actual members, members. of the nonprofit NRA, mm-hmm. the NRA, part of their main member services is teaching gun safety and training. Mm-hmm. That is the hallmark of the services they provide their, their members. So if we started discussing that issue in the sense of something that they already know and already prescribe to, um, I, I think that we might be able to continue within, maybe not this session, but within these next, um, between this term and next term, something that we'll, we might be able to work something out in, 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 in the capital. Um, but other than those two major things, I think that we're, we're going to have a, um, a lot of, important but obviously less uh, media worthy issues yeah. right as, as it relates you know to computer science for example and coding being taught at all schools we're starting to see how that sort of thing is is a, is a vital necessity for for um our our workforce development yeah workforce mm-hmm. development is critical and i, I even read an article recently that said that we have over ten thousand uh uh cyber security type jobs that uh need to be filled in the state of georgia and that, that's going to be very critical to what we're doing. So I definitely share your sentiment there. Yep. And if we're going to be competitive and going to continue being competitive, we can't do it based on manufacturing right. and these warehouse jobs that we've been seeing, right? We need to go into the technology and we need to make sure that the young folks right now are actually studying the work that they need. You know, we're obviously going to, uh, one of the um, things that has been, been working on over the years um, is issues of the um, opioid epidemic. Mm-hmm. I think that's something that's going to come up. Um, we have um, related a little bit to sort of the gun, gun safety, and that's my point of like, how do you rephrase it or reword it so it's more um, amenable to the Republican Party, which is um, school emergency training, right? Mm-hmm. What, what to do about those issues. Um, and, and if I could just interject real quick, there was an article I recently read that said the rate of firearm deaths amongst young people in the U.S. was 36 and a half times higher than in a dozen comparable high-income mm-hmm. countries uh, around the world. So... If, if Republicans are even hinting at that, uh, you know, we, we appreciate your leadership. And that's an area that I think all of us would be proud of because I, I'm not even, if I'm not mistaken, Georgia is very high on the list of accidental uh, deaths amongst uh, young people, uh, children specifically. So uh, that's an issue that I'm going to be paying a lot of attention to. And I think a, a continuation on focusing that we're going to do on session is some of the issues of how do we um, redevelop or develop rural areas, including mm-hmm. the issue that we left um, last year um, with, with broadband and basically internet access, right? And this is one of my, and, and I'll again go on a little tangent about what bothers me about our both of our um, General Assembly chambers being so disproportionately older where the average age is 65 years old at least in the house side Um, and Mm. we have folks making decisions about modern day technology and issues with two or three generations lag right Right. and i'll give you an example um, of a gentleman uh, one legislator when we were talking about issues of like autonomous vehicles and such and he you know stood up to do an inquiry and he's and he said something along the lines of like he didn't want his cell phone driving his car and i'm like no that's not how that works (laughs) (laughs) So, so it's really important. One of the things when we talk about diversity, for me, it also includes age diversity. That's why right. we need, a, you know, a kind of newer age of folks running um, and being elected so that 
we might know a little bit more. And even when we were talking about rural broadband, they were talking about um, having access to bytes, and they didn't know the difference between bytes and bits. And it's like, and I was like, how can you have a discussion about what sort of broadband? It, you know, that's not broadband. That's like that's not even dial-up speed that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. You know, when you had to wait for the AOL <laughs> tone to go, go through or whatever it is that used to happen before. So you know, very important to have that that age diversity because again, we are discussing a lot of you know issues that are that we're talking about our next ten to twenty years of our our, our workforce and economic development. One thing that I think is is going to come up that started in last session that. I think it's an important issue, but maybe it's not as sexy or as understandable as some of the other concerns, is the certificate of need, because that's um, for for hospitals um, or, or urgent care rooms, things like that. And a lot of, uh, particularly um, Republicans in the rural areas, seem to express an interest in this um, because uh, as a way to try to get medical services without needing to get that certificate of need. But that certificate of need um, makes sure that basically you're not divesting even more resources from hospitals that actually do provide more all comprehensive mm -hmm. care, including trauma, including surgeries. Because when you can nitpick at your best clients or your most lucrative clients and then leave every, everything else to, to your hospitals, that's still a disbenefit um, mm -hmm. to any area or any community. And so I think that that is definitely something to watch and something that we're going to need to discuss more in detail because, again, it's it's kind of technical stuff, medical stuff that even, is even outside of my purview that, that, again, doesn't sound as sexy or exciting as, as a lot of these other issues, but something that I think is going to be heavily pushed and that I have concerns with. One of the things that we push a lot on the show, we talk about rural Georgia and, you know, the city and everything. So there is this New York Times piece last week, and it was really interesting because what they did was the writer, he talked about how there's there's each side has their own solution. So you have one side that will say, you have to bring all this manufacturing back to these, you know, towns that have been left behind. The other side says, oh, no, the only thing that you can do is you have to move all these people to the cities because that's where the jobs are. And then that discounts the reality, like people have been there for generations, whatever, they don't want to move. What, what do you see as like, a realistic way to try to revitalize some of these areas? Well, see, I always have these problems, and this is what happens a lot now in, 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 in media and sort of broadcasting, um, particularly opinion opinions, analysis, things like that, that somehow things are always one or the other. It's an either or instead of an and. Mm -hmm. And for me, it's an and. I usually work usually within the and. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that we need both things. We need to make sure that there is infrastructure in rural areas like schools, like hospitals, um, so that if there is manufacturing or whatever jobs that might be better suited in those areas simply because there's land available, right? right. You can only build but so many factories in the city of Atlanta, right. which is zero, right. Right. <laughs> because there's no space for them. Mm -hmm. um, and so, of course, if we have a manufacturing um, or some sort of um, um, factory that wants to come, and that is, you know, outside of Metro Atlanta, we should be able to have workforce development to be able to attract them and have good schools for that and have the, 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 the hospitals and, and, and other, another infrastructure needs, whether, whether it's roads, whatever it may be, right? And at, at the same time, um, and I think that that is more towards the, on the educational, both technical and, 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 and college um, preparation, 
of these rural areas so that people have the option either to stay for whatever reasons. And if it's just simply because this is where I live and where I grew up and this is where I want to live, that's a perfectly good reason to stay somewhere. Um, And we should um, provide the educational resources or see what is maybe technical vocational needs in that area to be able to ensure that people can, can also live wherever they choose. And if people choose to move into Metro Atlanta, well then again, that's why we have to continue making sure that um, we deal with, with issues more related to a, a metro area, right? Whether it's transportation, whether it's affordable housing, whether it's the homeless issues. And so I, I always dislike where, where it seems like what's more important, rural issues or, or, or you know, urban metro areas, because both are important. Right. And I think we need to work on both of them at the same time. One issue that, uh, and I know, Eric, you, you want to add some of your perspective to, to you know, further on the legislative session as well. But one issue that's big on, on my radar is criminal justice reform. Uh, we recently saw uh, the administration, the current administration, uh, you know, passes this uh, this act, uh, uh, the First Step Act. And uh, I want to give a shout to my friend Van Jones, who uh, works really hard and has done a lot to uh, end recidivism and to work really hard to address the issue. Uh, you know, one thing that the First Step, Step Act does is it allows, I believe, somewhere around 180,000 uh, felons that are nonviolent drug offenders to kind of reiterate into society. Uh, what can we do in Georgia? Uh, I know we've been doing some some interesting things uh, around our state, and we have made some strides, such as ban the box. And you know, my issue is for is 88 percent of Georgia's prison population reach at the third grade level, and that is a huge issue, and it's something that I think with this first step act coming out of D.C. that it got overwhelming bipartisan support. Is that something that you think we can work on in Georgia? And more importantly, uh, if you look at what just happened in Florida, which I'm appalled about, but the Amendment 4, which resulted in the ex-felon voter rights being restored, uh, now the incoming governor is saying that he does not know if he's going to honor that vote that was just passed, which I think is totally uh, ridiculous. But what can we do in Georgia criminal justice reform? Is that, is that something that may be on your radar? And if so, is that something you think we can get bipartisan support on? Well, we have been getting bipartisan support um, under Governor Deal, right, when, when he sort of instituted the Criminal Justice Reform Council. And um, a lot of different legislation that has um, has passed with that, uh, including the um, Band of Box. Band of Box and, and um, some of the, well, we have the City of Atlanta with eliminating sort of cash bonds. And so I think that that is something that we were um, very working on on more about, uh, partisan bipartisan basis um, for different reasons, but it doesn't matter, right? I think I think the Republicans started looking at it from a fiscal perspective, yeah. um, in terms of um, you know what it could what it costs the state of Georgia um, versus what some of the preventive and post um, incarceration uh, programs can um, cost a lot less than the current incarceration of people, and so. I, I, it goes back to sort of my concern about what Kemp's decision is going to be on who's going to reelect him, right? Yeah. I, I think he has alluded to the fact that he will continue um, the Criminal Justice Council um, Reform Council, um, but I am concerned because, and again, I, this is just sort of like, you know, what you hear and what might actually happen, we'll see. But so, for example, um, one of the things that I believe he wants to add is a. Oh, it is thought that he wants to add as a priority to, to the council is immigration enforcement. 
again, we need to, you know, sort of like we're, we're, we're stepping back away from, from the purpose that the council had. But I think that um, generally, you know, I, I think I go back to the issue that I spoke earlier, that the, um, the current uh, elected, elected officials in the General Assembly um, kind of, you know, got wound over in the issues of this re uh, reform. And so most people are, are understand now the issues of, for example, having legislation that has mandatory uh, minimums, mm -hmm. right? And, and most legislation, they try to avoid that. We've had a couple here and there that might have, um, that did include some last session, but generally there's an understanding as to why those, that's least appropriate. And there should be more more flexibility for judges to determine sentencing. But, um, but I do think that, uh, despite whatever hard line that Kemp might actually, um, if he decides to turn into that, um, I think he's still going to have that focus. And again, I think that for budgeting purposes, so for no other reason, um, they're starting to see the, 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 the cost savings yeah. in continuing to, to do these reforms. So one major issue for Gwinnett is transportation. And if I'm correct, in March, there's going to be the vote on that. So explain to our audience why that is so important well uh, it, yes so so instead of the commission um doing a marta referendum vote in november elections um, they decided to spend uh, three quarters of a million dollars for a standalone election this march um not very fiscally conservative not at all no <laughs> Um, for for political reasons, unfortunately, mm -hmm. right? No, yeah, for it should have been on the ballot this year. It, it should have been, mm -hmm. yes. Um, so now it's going to cost a lot more effort to try to get folks out to vote. Um, mm -hmm. Not only on the county commissions on the commission side, um, but also on the advocate side, where it, you know trying to get folks to come out and vote after they've already voted and had runoffs right. in the middle of March. Um, so, but but it's vitally important. Um, tr public transportation specifically is vitally important. Again, and we're talking about Metro Atlanta, particularly these four surrounding um, counties, and then some of the the uh, uh, um, peripheral counties that we have. Um, we cannot continue to have the growth of what we're talking about, folks, both moving from other states right. to Georgia or even moving from within Georgia. We cannot continue sustaining this population if we do not improve and invest in our public transit. Mm -hmm. And again, something that our Winnet County Commission was very short-sighted in the last 15 years. Um, the, the, you know, I remember whenever it was the last vote, 94, whenever... I don't, I don't remember the specific year, but I was a lot younger. I still lived in DeKalb County, but I still remember news about the then county commission. One of them said something along the lines of, you know, we don't want those bad elements coming into mm -hmm. our county. So, you know, it's been, to a certain extent, a lot of um, relates back to the sort of the prejudice, the bias right. that public transportation mm -hmm. for some reason has here in our state. Um, but if we can, if we want to continue to grow, it's, it's vital that we pass this referendum and have MARTA expansion here in Winnet County. Um, and, you know, the, the, the local cities, Peachtree City, um, Norcross, Duluth, that would be the prime areas where transportation would be initially expanded, both bus routes and heavy and, mm -hmm. and, and light rail. Um, you know, they're all basically just waiting for the economic boom that's going to come with it. And so, you know, it's highly important that we understand that we need to come out and vote. How do, how do we, to your point, it's critical to come out and vote. How do we take that momentum, Stacey Abrams and Lindy Miller and, and John Barrow, and, you know, this great momentum. You know, I remember when I ran for Public Service Commission in 2014, 
uh, Jason Carter had created this really amazing opportunity and a lot of excitement. Uh, we had five black women running for statewide constitutional office, and it was all this momentum. We went into the next year, and it was like somebody deflated our balloon, right? So, you know, this is so critically important. And, and when you finish with this, and I know Eric wants to add to this point as well, I want to talk about and close out with the gerrymandering piece. But how, how do we make this a sexy issue? Because right now, uh, what I've been hearing is that, uh, one, it would have been a lot more motivation and excitement if it were on the November ballot. But the majority of folks that may come out uh, in March are people that, quite frankly, are going to be opposed to it anyway. How, how, do, how, can we, how can we really, between January after people, you know, after the holidays, and we know how fast January goes, we're going to have the King holiday, then the shortest month of the year in February, and then we go right into March. And, like, what can we do to get people excited? So what I, I am excited that we have all these newly elected, especially as, as it relates to when accounting, because they still have energy and they're still excited. <laughs> good, good. <laughs> both, good both, answer. Both that's one and both um, candidates that didn't win this election cycle. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, having conversations um, amongst each other, they are all willing um, to basically advocate and go out into their districts and basically push vote out. I don't know of any better, better. I don't. This wouldn't say a solution, but I don't know of any other way to um, continue that motivation and get folks to come out and vote, particularly the vote, votes um, for a yes. Then, because the no votes were going to be self motivated. Yeah. Um, but the mm -hmm. yes votes, unfortunately, even though it might be to our interest, uh, you mentioned lots of things happen, right? Mm -hmm. And so I'm excited that I've seen from both the elected and, and former candidates that um, are going to go out and push this. We have a lot of nonprofit organizations that are going to go out and push this. Me personally, I'm going to do what I think is the best way to reach folks and try to get them out to vote, which is, you know, I'm going to canvas not just my district, but basically the, this, the surrounding um, south portion of Winnet that, that is going to be the prime area That's of right. expansion. So, you know, I'm with even the, my new cohort of interns, for example, you know, they all know that part of their duties mm -hmm. is going to be canvassing. And so um, I'm going to be out knocking on doors and telling folks um, that why they need to come out and vote. And in, in our area here in Winnet County, um, it, it, that's where the yes votes are predominantly going to come from. Mm -hmm. That's just, that's just the, the truth of it. So I don't have to go try to convince them to vote yes. I just have to go to Make remind sure. them yeah. that they need to vote mm -hmm. when and how and where. And so I think that uh, we have enough people on the ground that are willing to put similar work in and they're already organizing to do so. Um, and so that and that kind of gives me um, optimism that we can get enough yes votes out there. So as of this moment, the soon-to-be newly sworn-in Ben Coop, you clearly inspired him. What inspired you to run to begin with? Uh, That's a curveball. Uh, <laughs> I wanted to really shake it up right there, huh? <laughs> well, see, the thing is, like, I, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell you, so I'll tell you the truth. It's a secret. Um, so I'll tell you a secret. Um, so This is an exclusive blue top secret. <laughs> exactly. Um, so I guess I'll make, I'll, I'll give the sh short version of it. But um, quite frankly, um, I've been doing advocacy since I was in college for the last 10 years prior to running just by, by, as a private volunteer, just mm -hmm. going to the Capitol on issues that were important to me. Um, and so I thought about running as a hypothetical thing sometime down the line. Yeah. You know, definitely not now, definitely not in 16. Um, it wasn't 
the best timing in terms of where I was in work and and kind of some personal situations. But um, I, I did volunteer slightly with the Jason Carter campaign yeah. right after that election ended. Um, I had two separate friends at two separate times call me and tell me if I would consider running for for the district. And the first friend, I was like, no, absolutely not, because not a good time. <laughs> I was easily able to say no. But the second time around comes, and, and I couldn't say no to him so quickly, so I was like, I'll think about it. In the meantime, he's like, hey, go to these events, go to these meetings, da-da-da. Um, so I started doing that, and one of the suggestions was that um, I um, meet with the former representative mm-hmm. and um, see where he was. There was rumors that he might want to consider retiring and to see, to a certain extent, if I could manage to get in his good graces in case he did, right? <laughs> um, so I met with him. We had dinner, myself, him, and two other individuals. So, um, And speaking of our earlier conversation, um, it, the conversation didn't go so great. Okay. Um, it started off with um, a lot, uh, uh, him saying something about like, I don't know if I should say this because you're here. And then it went into a litany list of like pit bulls and people having them, you know, uh, not in fences and all sorts of things. <laughs> and, uh, and then um, just, just, and then all of a sudden the conversation at some point turned into, um, he told me that his uh, biggest issue he had in the district is um, people having chickens in their backyards. And and it was sort of like a twilight candy cane. Kind of, kind of, you know, I was like, <laughs> it's like, he's serious. Like, he's serious. Mm-hmm. Like, this, this is like what That's people love. That's local issues, right? Yeah. And, and I'm like, yeah. I'm, I, I really, I just, I was just sitting there thinking like, you know, looking around, like, I don't know. I'm not sure if I'm <laughs> hearing this. But from a little venting about chickens, um, he went on to give basically a litany list of all the ne- negative stereotypes of Latinos, from pointing people living in the house and cars everywhere and, and being um, being dirty and doing barbecues in their front yards and loud music and just you know, and and, and then you know and then they have these chickens in their backyards <laughs> and and, wow. and 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 um, quite frankly he made. Um, an interesting comment that uh, that uh, the problem was that you know they were just coming coming from Mexico and they thought they were still in Mexico, and and it was it was at that time that I was like oh no he's serious like he's really telling me this <laughs> you are a strong woman mm-hmm. we appreciate because I was sitting there like because I wasn't sure I was, seriously it was one of those like am I really hearing this I'm like yeah I am but um, <laughs> but it wasn't until he said that I was like oh no I guess he's he's really serious and uh, you know and it was so so funny because. I mentioned to him that this, in fact, um, the only person that I happen to know that has chickens because she was a former co-worker and she would sell us like her, her the eggs, um, it happens to be white. <laughs> and she happens to live in Decatur. <laughs> and I've never seen a chicken running around wild in Winnet County in like the 14 years that I had lived here. I've seen a lot of chicken in Forza. Yeah, but running yeah, around true. like in the streets and uh, stuff? Yes. Yeah, I have seen cross the street. Yeah, but I mean it's but but I mean it's it's unfortunate because even when you go into rural Georgia where it's it's poor and it's white in some in some areas you see it, uh, you know I I think again to our stereotypes from our conversation from earlier, but the stereotypes about blacks or Latinos or Asians, it's sad that in twenty eighteen going into twenty nineteen, mm-hmm. uh, this is some of the types of beliefs and feelings people have held. Yeah. So that was pretty uh tough skin W to be able to observe it, uh, well, absorb it. There was a cherry on top a lot of all 
that um when he told me that I, when I mentioned the fact that yay, the only person I happen to know she happens to be white and white sorry you know just don't know anybody else that actually owns them right and uh, you know he basically said something along the lines of you know well then you must be as bad as those people wow and well our lunch ended there and I. <laughs> basically decided that again, you know, kind of what I tell folks, right? You can't complain if you don't vote. You can't complain about the elected officials you have if you right. put yourself out there and run. And um, and for him being having a D behind his name made it even that much worse. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, I, I quite frankly decided that it was more, more of an obligation to run, um, whether or not it was the right timing. And so that's how I ended up in this so situation. It, so it sounds like just like when you're going to have kids and there's never the right time. And then you're just like, oh, okay, we're having kids. That was your scenario. Like, it wasn't <laughs> yeah, the right I, time, but it happened. Well, look, we're, we're coming to a close of, of a very great conversation with somebody I've said multiple times that I, I mutually love, respect, and admonish. Um, you know, and, and, and we want to kind of close out with this opportunity that we have in 1920 to get more Democrats elected, to get more of our, our base uh, encouraged and excited. Because uh, even though we we have a new governor, uh, we may have a House and, and quite possibly a Senate if we do what we're supposed to do. Uh, all of us from, from the top of, of, of the Democratic leadership down to the organizer. Uh, talk to us about the opportunities and also the very real challenge of the gerrymandering that may happen. I spoke to Eric Holder a couple of months ago had a chance to spend time with him and talk about his work nationally. But right here in Georgia, uh, we have seen so much that has impacted our communities. And if we don't continue to remain vigilant, we could see a a much bigger problem because a lot of times our focus is on what Trump is doing, right? But all politics is local. What can we do uh, supporting people like yourself going into 19? And then really making sure that we understand fundamentally the importance of how redistricting is going to happen uh, during that period of time. What can we do in the next two years? Don't want to look past 19, but we do have to make sure we understand the importance of the redistricting. Talk to us a little bit about that uh, before you get out of here, because I think that is probably one of the most critical issues uh, that we're going to be facing in our next two election cycles. Absolutely. Um, the thing that we need to continue doing is maintaining that momentum that we said, right? Not saying the election's done, let's wait. Let's wait for the election cycle in 20 to start. Um, the election cycle has already started. That's right. And so we need to continue that infrastructure. Most definitely, I think, um, very important at the county level, um, at, the, at, at the city level, when we have municipal elections, we have to be engaged in those as well mm-hmm. and keep that um, volunteer base and those first-time voters engaged to make sure that they come out and vote for municipal and then they come out to vote a second time yeah. in 2020. We need to, if under the General at general Assembly, we need to be able to gain the majority as Democrats, at least in one of the chambers. Where, as you mentioned, we could have that possibility happen on the House side for sure, mm-hmm. kind of harder on the Senate side, but there's a possibility there as well. The reason we need to ensure that is because once the census happens in 2020, um, redistricting happens in 2021. That's right. And redistricting is, is done um, starting off on the House side, basically the, the, the leadership. And the leadership is composed of the um, party that's in the majority. Um, they are the ones that draw through the reapportionment office, that draw 
or redraw these districts. And mm-hmm. they don't just draw the House, um, the, com- the General Assembly districts, they draw the federal congressional districts mm-hmm. as well. Right. And so what I tell folks, and the reason I think this issue is so important for us in order to make sure that we actually flip our chambers is because this is going to be at least a 10-year, if not 12-year impact before we get mass redistricting again in the mm-hmm. next census. Yeah. So this is not an issue where we're going to be able to fix it, you know, next election cycle or two election cycles. If we don't get it right in 20, because we don't have the governor's office, um, in 20 we'll still have um, Kemp uh, in the governor's office, we need to be able to have some negotiating power of how those maps are drawn. And the only nego- real negotiating power we can have is being in the majority, at least in one of the chambers. And so that's why it's so important to continue the infrastructure of, of motivating and engaging voters and something that we mentioned before, right? In making sure that we don't leave on the table untapped voters, um, particularly of these potential first-time voters, that we really engage those voters so that we don't come two or three weeks before election cycle and be like, hey, why didn't you vote? Um, or why don't you go vote? Who are you? Like, what do you stand for? Like, why should I go vote? You know, how, how is this really of, of, of how can I affect the process? And so we need to make sure that that educational canvassing is being done in this next two years. And I don't think that there's any other way to do it than, than to actually reach out and go literally door knocking on folks and talking yeah. to them during these next two years. Um, and that's a lot of hard work. It is, and, and I, I may sway away from some of our really faithful and loyal listeners' perspective, but you know, I, I believe personally in independent redistricting commissions. You know, I think mm-hmm. we need to look at it because regardless of who's in power, I think lines need to be drawn in a fair and just way. Uh, we have seen uh, on both sides, quite frankly, uh, it being taken advantage of, mm-hmm. and I think that it, it is a shame uh, that, and, and you've articulated the urgency of it very well, but it's a shame that we are in a position where if we don't win, we're starting to think of the worst case scenario. And that is scary for me because I've lived in this state for a long time. <laughs> I've seen the good. Uh, I have seen what the Olympics was able to do for the metro Atlanta region. I have seen where I'm, I'm currently looking at what uh, the deepening of the Savannah port is doing for areas like Chatham County and Savannah. But now we have talk of inland ports up in North Georgia, which I'm excited about. So when you see all this potential and, and you see us having the busiest airport in the world and, you know, all this, but then you look at the issues that we're facing. You mentioned the opioid crisis earlier. You have human trafficking. When you look at all these areas, it's very unfortunate to know that a lot of the progress we can make would be determined on a selfish way of redrawing those lines. And I would hope that we are successful in 20 because I agree 110% with you uh, about, you know, the importance of 20. And I will work my butt off to make sure, uh, still didn't cuss here. I'm a good job. I'll work my butt <laughs> off to make sure that we do the right job to get more numbers up in the house and, uh, and I think we have a good chance. I think Lucy McBath shook the world a little bit. You know, we, with our Cobb delegation, they did a phenomenal job in working on that. We did some really good work around the state, and I hope we can continue to do that. So we want to thank you so much for not only being on here, but being someone that is uh, well aware of the issues and someone that has, you know, not only been accessible and communicative to, uh, to the community and to your constituents, but you came up and visited us in our county, in Forsyth County, mm-hmm. uh, an area that you don't represent. And you took time out of, of, of your day to turn our Christmas party into a dialogue, which I thought was great because folks were 
you know, really their families <laughs> and, and it turned into a spirited discussion that I think people were really happy to have. Eric, do you want to share anything? And before before we leave today, I'm going to close out on a very important issue. But did you have anything else for our, our very special guest today? So I have one more question. What would you tell everybody out there? The session's beginning. What should they do this year to stay engaged? Beyond actually working in their district's canvassing, come to the Capitol. I can't emphasize that enough. If you have any days off, if you can get days off, um, come visit us at any time whenever we have session because we always need people there being advocates, being mm -hmm. physical, having a physical presence, talking to their representatives or, or their senators, especially if you have a elected official that does not necessarily have your personal values or your, right. or, or your political sways, I think you're even more highly important to actually come. Because, you know, if you come to talk to me, I'm kind of probably going to agree with you. So, right. um, But I, I welcome anyone to come and, you know, ask for me, call me out to the ropes. I'd be happy to um, give you a tour, walk you around, show you around. If you want to create um, lobby days for, with your organization um, at whatever type, um, mm -hmm. to just come and show them how it's like this is a public place, and right. I think many people don't know that that this um, the Goldome belongs to people, and that there should be um, ordinary citizens that are there and not lobbyists that predominate those halls, which is the case now. So I'm really easy to get a hold of if you're on Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Instagram. If you look for me as Vote Brenda Lopez, um, please send me a message at any of those platforms, and I'll be happy to have you there and happy to help you host the um, lobby day. But we need folks every day. And also making sure that you're in tune to calls to action that myself and other legislators do, because sometimes when some of these important issues that we discuss do become, become legislation, proposed legislation, mm -hmm. um, and they're going through the committee hearings, we always need people being present there. And it's so hard to get people down. Um, and, and so that's the number one thing you can do. Or the second most, well, I, I think it's one and one, one point two mm -hmm. of importance um, besides canvassing and talking to other voters is making sure you come down to the Capitol. So you're saying it's a lot more difficult for somebody who you disagree with to ignore you if you show up in person versus just sending an email. That's right. correct. Okay. Your most effective <laughs> way to have any persuasion is to physically see them. Mm -hmm. And um, and sometimes if they don't want to come out, we can wait for them outside until yeah. they do. Okay. So I'll happy to, I'll be happy to stand around and, and point them out. And well, out where they are. well, in in Forsyth County, we we have a, a newly elected uh, state senator, and uh, we have a house delegation. But trust that we will have a legislative agenda, and we are looking forward to coming to see you and other Democrats that are representing us uh, under the Gold Dome. And for all of our listeners, I want to thank you for a phenomenal year. Uh, this is an experiment that Eric and I embarked on uh, back in September and from Jason Carter to, you know, Sarah Miko and, and now our good friend, Brenda Lopez. Uh, we've had two governors on this show, Eric. We've done a great job in covering national politics, but I want to end on uh, a very serious note. Uh, first and foremost, wishing everybody a very Merry Christmas. Uh, but we are on the eve of a looming government shutdown and I want to make sure that even in the midst of what we're seeing going on, uh, to continue to the 11th hour to think about the over 400,000 men and women that work to uphold our government. Uh, while we're knowing, in, in, in my perspective, if I'm not mistaken, the 75% of, of our services will be okay through 2019, uh, but there are a tremendous amount of individuals, including our friends, 
brothers and sisters, regardless of their political affiliation, that work with the Department of Homeland Security, the Justice Department, the Interior Department, the State Department, and the Department of Housing and Urban Development. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, the Department of Homeland Security, as we all know, ensures and protects our safety. This is not just about the border. It's about protecting us from our cybersecurity uh, through our, 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 our men and women that are serving internationally, uh, that serve and put their lives on the line every day. The Department of Justice, we all know, we saw this new uh, legislative legislation where uh, lynching is now a federal crime, and the Justice Department is supposed to be in place to make sure that uh, justice is equal. The Interior Department we've seen under this administration, the deterioration in so many aspects of our environment, our public lands, and uh, you know we need to focus on that. The State Department, our diplomatic relationships around the world, and the Department of Housing and Urban Development, the men and women in this country, 1.9 million in the state of Georgia are living out of below poverty. Over 45 million are living out of below poverty in the United States. And, you know, just to give you a quick perspective to close out, here's why I want you to think about this. More than 420,000 government workers would be expected to work without pay. Some federal employees uh, would be deemed essential and would continue to work, but their pay would be withheld until the shutdown is over. Uh, additionally, that figure would include more than 41,000 federal law enforcement and correctional officers. The same uh, police officers that we praise uh, would have to serve and protect under the same, if not worse, conditions uh, without being paid. The vast majority of, of employees at the Department of Homeland Security would be among those required to work without pay, and that would include tens of thousands of Customs and Border Protection agents and Customs officers. Um, it would also include roughly 42,000 employees of our Coast Guard. Uh, more than 380,000 federal employees would be placed on a furlough, according to uh, you know, the information that I've seen. And this means that they would effectively be put on a leave of absence without pay. And Congress could move to order the furloughed employees to be paid retroactively after the shutdown. And lastly, this would also include the majority of our staff at NASA, the National Park Service and Department of, Her of Housing and Urban Development. Um, those expected to be placed on a furlough would roughly, uh, roughly be around 52,000 employees at the Internal Revenue Service. Uh, all of us know how important tax returns and tax filing for people like you, Eric, that's a small business owner. Mm -hmm. uh, ladies and gentlemen, understand that this is an issue that uh, it's far beyond the rhetoric of a government shutdown. Please, in this time of our, of our year for uh, Christmas and for the new year, think about the over 400,000 employees that are going to be affected. Call the president, call the vice president, call your senators, call your congressmen, call anyone you can. Uh, I still believe in our democracy. I still believe there's hope in America. And thank you for allowing Blue Topsy to be at the forefront of many of those conversations. We look forward to sharing more insightful views in 2019. Eric, thank you for being a great co-host, for keeping me sharp and making <laughs> me better. And uh, thank all of you for listening. Tell them how they can continue to support us All throughout right. the new year and uh, going into next year. As always, hit us up on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Blue Topsy. And check out our Blue Topsy website at bluetopsy.com. Thank you all for an amazing 2018. We'll see you next year. Thanks, everybody. <laughs>